Wake up, everyone. It's time for the Steve Noble Show, where biblical Christianity meets the everyday issues of life in your home, at work, and even in politics. Steve is an ordinary man who believes in an extraordinary God. And on his show, there's plenty of grace and lots of truth, but no sacred cows. Call Steve now at 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Or check him out online at thestevenobleshow.com. And now, here's your host, Steve Noble. Welcome back. What's that? What's that old saying? When uh, when the world gives you lemons, you make lemonade, right? Is that the deal? Uh, well, that's the deal this time. That's the deal today. Uh, so we're having to call an audible. Had a, an audible happen with our friends down at BJU Seminary, so we're not going to be connecting with them uh, with a guest today. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna switch here, but I'm still kind of in pseudo-academic, pseudo-teaching mode. Uh, But instead of somebody like our friend Sam Horn being on, uh, you're stuck with me. So here's what I would like to do. This this is the first year I've taught world history. I've been teaching U.S. history. This is my third year teaching that. My sixth or seventh year teaching Christian ethics and my 12th year teaching civics. So world history, just like when I prepped and started teaching U.S. history, you kind of go back into that mode, that topic, that subject. And for most of us, most of us don't have fond memories of our history classes. But when you dive back in and you start looking at uh, U.S. history or world history through a biblical lens with a solid operational biblical worldview, it gets really interesting really fast. And you have this opportunity, and my wife experienced this in homeschooling, that you kind of go back to school yourself. So in teaching, you actually learn. So today, we're going to welcome to uh, Noble U class. I hope you're having a good day. I'm glad you're here. And we're going to pick up on our conversation uh, studying world history uh, by looking at probably, not probably, I would say definitely, the most consequential moment in world history, which of course would be the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which all occurs under the Roman Empire. But you have to understand, and I was talking to my students about it this week, you have to understand and should be fascinated by the fact that uh, why there, why that particular part of the world, uh, why then, like what was the setup? What what was the deal with Rome? What was the deal with the way Rome operated? What was the deal with the the nature of the of the known world at the time? What about uh, the ability for the gospel to travel, uh, literally, as well as from a, a literary perspective, like language? And if you're going to drop the gospel in, if you're going to drop Jesus in, using kind of a military analogy, and the Lord is is in charge of everything, you got his you got his sovereignty on top of everything. You have his providence intermingling with mankind's free will and our decisions. And the Lord's going to pick a time and a place in which to drop in his son. He did say a lot in the Old Testament about when this would happen, where this would happen. Very specific right down to the city of David where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But how do you get Jesus to Bethlehem? How do you arrange all that? And so when you look at this particular portion of world history and you dive into Rome, so this week was the first half of chapter four in our textbook, ladies and gentlemen, looking at the Roman civilization. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take you through what I just thought this week. 
I'll abbreviate it here and there, but I want I want you this is really fascinating and it's really cool to kind of bring our Christian perspective and the Bible been, melds together with world history. And and nobody argues about these things with Rome. What we argue about is Jesus Christ because whether we get everything right about Rome isn't really going to alter the trajectory of everybody's life. But but whether you agree with and believe in the biblical account does alter the trajectory of every single person's life that's ever lived. That's why the Bible has been attacked for 2,000 years, but the existence of Caesar's Gaelic Wars is not. Because if Caesar's Gaelic Wars actually didn't occur, uh, life goes on. But if Jesus actually came, actually was the Son of God, actually died on a cross to accomplish what he said he was accomplished, actually resurrected, well, that has implications on every human being that has ever existed or will ever exist. So, Welcome to Rome. And, and of course, we've all heard that, that, that line, right? All roads lead to Rome. Somebody recently, I, I found this in my research, just getting ready to teach class this week. Somebody recently, because of the amazing amount of data that we have, they were wondering if that's still true. Back in the Roman world, it was true. All roads did eventually lead to Rome. But is that still true today? Spain, France, Britain, Italy, Greece, Asia Minor, uh, Turkey, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, all the way to, to go to China if you want. Uh, could you find a way that all roads over there actually lead to Rome? So this guy inputs all this data because that's what we have these days. He has all this data and he plugs it into this computer program and then he plots it all out on a map. And sure enough, if you Google that, all roads, all roads lead to Rome, question mark, current day, you're going to find this graphic that he created. And, and in fact, every single road in Africa, Europe and into Asia can uh, trace back to Rome. <laughs> Fascinating little thing. But all roads lead to Rome. We, we think about that in the context of 2,000 years ago. But the Roman world was also the cradle. Uh, Greek world and the Roman world were the cradle of Western civilization. But the Greek, the Roman world was the cradle of Christianity itself. And so the gospel then travels all over the place on what kind of roads, class? That's right. Roman roads. And that's why the study of Rome is so fascinating. So, uh, you know, think you can get this in your mind. You know, the boot, Italy. That's where Rome uh, comes to birth and, and, and the city of Rome itself, the Italian peninsula. There's a bunch of different people that were there uh, over time. Eventually, uh, right there in the Mediterranean, oh, over time, the Romans would later refer to the Mediterranean as Mare Nostrum, which simply meant R-C, O-U-R, possessive. <laughs> that's, the, that's the power of the Roman Empire. Earliest inhabitants, though, were not Romans. There were a bunch of different people there. The Etruscans were there. 800 B.C., uh, portions of Italy were inhabited by Phoenicians and Greeks besides the Etruscans. And, and the Etruscans themselves had learned a lot. Now watch this. Had learned a lot about Greek culture and most likely were the ones that introduced that into Roman culture. So you have this passing down of things. Uh, I, I can take you back 4,000 years ago uh, to when they're like, yeah, you know how many degrees there are in a circle? 360. You know how many seconds there are? In a minute, uh, 60. You know how many minutes there are in an hour? 60. That kind of stuff was going on all the way back to Sumerians. I mean, it's crazy when you study that. So this is Rome. Okay, we're in Italy in this case. The city of Rome that was on the banks still is of the Tiber River. And as you look at around the world, even in the modern day, how many of our major cities are at ports, along cities, along rivers, along the ocean, ocean ports? That's what Rome was, the Tiber River. And they had all these trade routes. Everybody's coming through there anyway. So all these little... Uh, all these little villages started forming. Eventually, they formed something called the League of the Seven Hills, which really was the beginning of the city of Rome. And then family was a big deal in Rome. If you have a bunch of families, you've got a clan. If you've got a bunch of clans, you've got a tribe. 
And into this, eventually, I'll get you there, is Jesus. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, find your seats. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Welcome to World History Class this week. This is Steve Noble, your somewhat humble host and teacher here at Noble U. And today we're talking about uh, Roman civilization, the Roman civilization. And it's into this picture that Jesus that Jesus is born. Okay, certain time, certain place, specific reasons. It's a great setup. And that's why this week, as I've been teaching uh, world history, this is the class I taught this week, talking about. Roman civilization, uh, chapter four, part one. <laughs> so part two, uh, would come next week. So, uh, super cool. And just trying to bring you into the world of world history. I said world twice, uh, and, and let you see, hopefully you'll see just that God's providence and, and him picking that time in that place to drop the Messiah down here. Uh, for the rest of us. So pretty awesome story. Er, early Roman society, not different from many others, uh, but back then, they, they had the patricians and the plebeians, okay? You guys have heard me use the word plebeians on the air before. Plebeians are the regular people, farmers, traders, craftsmen. Uh, the early government there in, in, in Italy and Rome was a monarchy, kings, queens, things like that. 509 B.C., okay? So we're still 500 years out. Roman nobility overthrows the Etruscan king. The Etruscans are in charge of a significant portion of Italy and established a new form of government. That form of government is called a republic. Sounds familiar, right? So remember, our founding fathers were great students of history. They were great students of, wor of world history. They were great students of European history because that was their lineage, kings, queens, aristocracy. But they are also studying the great um, civilizations and governments uh, of all time. Greece, certainly, the start of democracy. And then in Rome, thing get, things get really concrete. So now our founding fathers are like, okay, now we're going to do our own thing. So uh, we've learned a few lessons from the kings and queens and these idiots did things back in europe uh but let's go back let's let's go a little south from there let's go down let's what did the greeks do what did the romans do so you're going to see a lot of this stuff show up uh the republic government there was divided into three branches does that sound familiar the consuls the senate and the assemblies and then remember we've got rich people and we've got poor people we've got plebeians okay so you know where that's going the same place it always goes. Power was divided evenly between the consuls. Get this. And one could not act without the consent of the other. Ah, separation of powers. The Senate became the most important and powerful component. It soon became an arist aristocratic body. I was talking to my students this week, and I was saying, hey, you guys, does it seem like our Senate, our Congress, even our White House, for the most part, is, you think that's plebeians or patricians? Uh, patricians, right. But who elected them? Plebeians, right. And I just pause. Anybody like drain the swamp? Does that sound familiar? Okay, you're, you're in the right direction here. The Republic also had assemblies through which the people could express their views. Ah, we got to have a mechanism by which we can uh, uh, involve regular folks. They voted on legislation submitted by the consuls. They declared war and elected high-ranking officials. So if you want to go to war, you should probably have the voice of as many people as possible, which is why only Congress can declare war in the American experiment. Looking back to Rome, right? That's what's going on here. After two centuries of struggle and war, the plebeians finally realized political equality. They established their own assembly and elected officials 
The Council of Plebeians, it was called, elected 10 men to the office of Tribune. And in turn, they protected the rights and interests of the common people. Uh, and then when they had gatherings, if they didn't like what was going on and they wanted to shout something, I forbid in English, they would shout something else in their language. Do you know what that word is? Veto. By shouting veto, which means I forbid, they could stop unjust acts of the patrician officials. This is the people pushing back against the power base, the plebeians versus the patricians. Continuing pressure finally forced the patricians, this is very important, to put Roman laws into writing. That was called the Law of the Twelve Tribes. Very, very famous. If you've gone to law school, we talk about it in civics, the Law of the Twelve Tribes. And then hung them in the Roman form, which is like their version of Washington, D.C. They're in Rome. And when you, and when you study the form, I showed the, my students a video of the remains now. The Senate was there, uh, gathering place for all the people. Different uh, temples were there. But that was like their Washington, D.C. And when you look at the, 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 uh, the remains of that civilization, and I was showing them on this video this week. I'm like, does, that, does like the architecture and stuff look familiar? Uh, yeah, it really does. What does it remind you of? Washington, D.C. Very good. All right. Good job. You're seeing it. Cool. So that's the law of the 12 tribes. And, and it's written down. So again, with my students, why is it important that you have your laws written down and available to the public? Have you guys ever been in an argument where it's a he said, she said? I didn't say that. That's not exactly what I said. So I try to put my teaching into their context all the time. And they're like, raise your hand. Of course, everybody. Right. So if you had recorded something, then I hold up an iPhone. Like you use this, you record it, you take a screen grab, whatever. You guys ever do that? Yep. Okay, why? So that you have proof, right? You have something you can point to. You have a fixed standard. And it better be accessible to mankind. I mean, the public better be able to see these laws. If they say, hey, we have a law about that. Yeah, can I see it? No. (laughs) Can you trust them? Of course not. So you got to be informed, right? That's the form. So then Rome will will then become the master of Italy because it wasn't at first. The Romans weren't at first. It was a mixed. But Rome soon began expanding into southern Italy, threatening the Greek colonies there. Uh, They defeated, uh, after defeating a distant relative of Alexander the Great, his name was uh, Pyrrhus, they were able to take control of the entire Italian peninsula. That's 265 BC. Remember, keep in mind, we've got Jesus being born in Bethlehem on the horizon. So we've got to get there. The protection of Roman law and the stability of prosperity that Rome brought to the peninsula secured the loyalty of its subjects. So it wasn't such a bad thing to be under Roman occupation because now you're going to get some of the benefits of being a part of the Roman Empire. Then they go from being the master of the Italian peninsula to the master of the entire Western Mediterranean, which is a huge area. So Rome's conquest of the Italian peninsula brought it into conflict with, for those of you that watched gladiator they did one of the in the in the arena they do a reenactment of the battles with carthage okay those are the punic wars there were three of them between 264 and 146 bc rome and carthage fought each other uh first punic war that was over the island of sicily and the romans that one's the romans were going up against the carthaginians the carthaginians were great at naval warfare the romans weren't going to beat them at that game so the romans brought the ground game onto the sea and that's when you get things like gang planks. Now you're going to drop a board onto your neighbor's ship and you're going to have uh, Roman foot soldiers dealing with Carthaginian Navy people. So I asked my students this week, do you guys have any idea what Marines generally think of the Navy? <laughs> to the Marines, the, na- the Navy's like Uber drivers. Uh, you give us a ride, drop us off, and, and the real men, us, we'll go take care of it. 
you guys are just the Uber drivers. Same thing here, okay? Pretty funny. Then you get the second uh, Punic War, which started when Carthage attacked a Roman ally in Spain. So now you're outside of Italy. You're over here in Spain and Europe, right? And so uh, the guy that, uh, that came to um, fame and all of that was Hannibal, who was a young Carthaginian commander. Uh, people liken him to Alexander the Great and his military cunning. Interestingly enough, this is Hannibal, okay? We're talking a couple hundred years before the birth of Jesus. His tax, hack, t- tactics, his battle tactics, were being used uh, during World War II tank battles. Wow. And are still studied today. That's Hannibal. So now you're going through all these Punic Wars because we got to get Rome to take over pretty much the entire Mediterranean. And then you're starting to see the table set for the birth of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. That's why world history matters. We'll be right back. Welcome to class, everybody. Nice to uh, be here with you. This is Steve Noble, your instructor at Noble U. In world history, talking about the Roman Empire today, part one. Uh, we'll see if I can squeeze in part two next week. I actually taught this this week in my world history class, and it's into this world, the Roman world, that uh, God drops his son. And not not by happenstance. It was all timing, what the world looked like at the time, what was capable at the time. If you're trying to drop the savior of the world and his gospel and his message into a place and time in the, in the older part of the world. And you want it to maximum ability to spread as fast as possible. Then this is the time you pick the Roman empire has to get to the point where it's at by the time Jesus is born. And then boom, that the spread of the gospel becomes relatively easy. Uh, geographically speaking, language speaking, we'll get to that. So this is what I've been talking to my students about this week in my world history class, the Roman Empire. So you get these three Punic Wars. That's what the Carthaginians and eventually they win. uh, The Romans do. Then they turn their attention to deal with the rest of the Mediterranean, Uh, Macedonian, Syria, Egypt. They're all eventually defeated. And then Rome becomes the master of the entire Mediterranean world. I have a map up of it here in the studio. If you're on Facebook Live or on Rumble, you can see it. I mean, literally the Mediterranean. So you're all the way from Spain up to France. Even a Great Britain, part of Great Britain was under Roman control. All the way do, across the northern Africa. And then you come over to, well, uh, Judea, Jerusalem, Israel. That's all in there. And that's where Pontius Pilate is. He's a governor. So when you have uh, this much territory and you're going to run it from Rome, just like we do here in the States, you better split it up. Well, they did. They had 10 different uh, provinces and each province had a governor. And that's where you're going to get the governor of, of Judea at the time uh, when Jesus is tried, found innocent, crucified anyway. Boom. Pontius Pilate. Okay? We're getting there. So Rome becomes the master of the entire Mediterranean world, which actually fulfilled uh, the prophet Daniel's visions. If you read that, uh, the kingdoms of Alex- Alexander's generals fell to Rome. That's Daniel 6 and Daniel 8. So you're reading about that literally hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened. That's prophecy. That's all in there. So now you've got that. Now they're now they've got the whole thing, the whole Mediterranean Rome owns. And so now you've got these provinces and with each provinces as a governor uh, who are appointed by the Senate to rule each province. OK, so now now we've, now we're into the Roman Empire's emergence. But first, it declines into dictatorship by the first century. Rome was the greatest power on earth. Nevertheless, during the two centuries before Christ's birth, the very foundation would be shaken. 
Rome's economic and military backbone was the hardworking citizen farmer. Why? Because they made up the army, right? This is not abnormal from the way it works here and in most other big countries. During the Great Expansion, the most severe hardships fell on them, the soldiers, creating a widening divide between the wealthy and the poor. So they turned to the government for help but received none. So most of the armies, think about what's setting up here. Most of the armies are made up of plebeians, farmers. They left, they left their wives and their kids and their farmland. They go to fight for Rome. And in the meantime, their farms collapse and the patricians, the rich people, come in and start buying up their land. Now, how uh, offensive is that to you as a plebeian, especially as a Roman soldier? Which is why if you saw a gladiator, all, he, all Maximus wanted to do was get back to his farm, get back to his vineyards, get back to his wife, wanted back to his simple life. But that went away for most of them. And you know how serious we are in this country about taking care of our veterans, right? So just think of this and this tension going on. So the poor find for themselves champions for their cause and the brothers Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus. That should ring a bell if you saw the gladiator. Their grandfather was a a famous general. Tiberius proposed many changes in the Republic, which made him a lot of enemies. He was eventually killed along with 300 of his followers by angry senators. Very violent obviously. So then Gaius comes in. He becomes a tribune in 123 BC. He sought to carry out his brother's land reform work. He too was murdered during a riot planned by his enemies, of course. This is brutal back then. The Senate resolved, uh, resorted to violence to preserve the power and wealth of the aristocrats, which eventually led to three civil wars. Now you've got the, the, the rich versus the poor, and the poor make up most of the army, which should, you should understand than the power and persuasion of popular Roman generals. Because now most of their guys are the poor people that have been shafted back in the homeland. So then you get these three civil wars. 88 BC was the first one that broke out in Asia Minor. The common people wanted uh, this guy called Marius to lead. The Senate appoints Sulla instead. So now you got two generals going at it. There's the civil war. Sulla emerged victorious, declared himself dictator. But after he resigned, the Senate was unable to maintain control. Uh, and so all of a sudden, yeah, there you go again, another civil war. Back and forth, back and forth. This is the human story. And so that's going on. So ambitious men obviously are seeking to, by being generals and heading armies, to take over control of Rome. So there's three at this point in history, 60 BC. Okay, One's named Crassus, one's named Pompey, and then the final one you know, Julius Caesar. 60 BC? They formed an alliance to rule over Rome, which was called the Triumvirate. Okay, the three of us. Hey, we'll just, hey, we'll do this together. Now, if you understand human depravity, human nature, how do you think that's going to go? Crassus had money. Pompey had the Senate. But Julius Caesar had the people. So he's up in Gaul, up towards Spain. Uh, He builds a well-disciplined and loyal army up there. He's going through all exploits and keeping command and taking territory. And then he's writing up the reports and sending them back to the Roman people. So Julius Caesar would love social media. He'd be working that social media thing all the time to try to build up his image amongst all the common people. He's over there. He looks out for the people. He's taking good care of his soldiers. He cares about the people. His exploits are amazing. Julius Caesar, he's the man. Like, he's making himself popular. He's using social media, right? That's what he was doing back in the the day. So then uh, the Senate, of course, see him getting too, too popular along with Crassus and Pompey, and they order him to come back and disband. Well, he's coming back, but he ain't disbanding. He's keeping his army together, and they crossed a certain river which became an act of war in and of itself. 
Do you remember? Do you, have, do you know the name of the river? I bet you do. You just might not know this is where it comes from. He crossed the Rubicon. Ding, 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 ding. You got it? He crossed the Rubicon. Okay? Uh, that's a problem. So he comes across the Rubicon. He does not disband. So now they're throwing down again. So after his victory, Caesar then declares himself dictator for life. How convenient. He curbed the corruption of the provincial governments. That's good. He established, listen to this, colonies for landless army veterans. I looked this up recently, and they have, they've actually unearthed these things. It looks like a, like a well-planned out city. So he's building these little colonies for all of these soldiers who lost their land to the rich people, which would show you why Julius Caesar was so popular. You know what that's like here. We care about our veterans. We should anyway. He granted citizenship to many non-Italians living in Rome's new colonies. Ooh, is that uh, amnesty? And initiated many public works programs. He also established the calendar that is the basis for our modern day calendar. So I've, I've got a picture on the screen that I showed in class of a, uh, it's basically like a, a cube. It's taller than a cube, um, but it's got uh, three columns on each side at the top of each column is a picture and that's the calendar. So three columns per side, four sides equals how many months? 12. Boom. There you go. So if you like the calendar, if you like 12 months, uh, thank you, Julius. That was him. The modern day calendar. Then, of course, on the Ides of March, which just means the 15th of March. On the Ides of March, 44 BC, a group of conspirators killed him in the Senate chambers. We all know about that one. Okay. Now we're 44 years around, 44 years out from the birth of Jesus. Now we got to finish. God's got to finish setting this up. That leads, of course, to the Third Civil War to determine who the next ruler is. Caesar's friend and right-hand man, you know this name, Mark Antony, teamed with Octavian. This is a very important name. Octavian, Caesar's grandnephew, to capture and punish Caesar's murders. They divided the Roman territory in half. <laughs> you know where that's going. But their ambitions led to uh, another war, of course. 31 BC, Octavian's navy won a decisive victory, and he became the sole ruler of Rome. 31 BC, Octavian which gets you to a period of Roman history that you might have heard this before. It's called uh, Pax Romana, Roman peace, the peace of Rome, Pax Romana. The most prosperous, peaceful time in Roman history occurs while Augustus, while Octavian, is the Caesar between 27 BC and AD 14. And what happens in that little time frame? What happens in that dash? 27 BC dash AD 14. What happens in that dash? Boom! Christ is born, okay? Octavian voluntarily chose uh, to share his power with the Senate. He took the title princeps, C-E-P-S, princeps, which means first citizen. Smart, right? I'm amongst you. I'm a citizen. Rome is no longer a republic, but an empire ruled by an imperator, like an empire, an emperor. The Senate conferred the title of Augustus on him, which was a title of divinity. That's why all of a sudden, if you're going to claim there's another god, like Somebody says, oh, the Jesus guy, this crazy Jew, is, is I think he's called himself a god. Uh, that's going to be a problem because Caesar Augustus, that's divinity. Okay? Got it? You with me? So Caesar Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus. Does that ring a bell? Think Christmas. Luke chapter 2. Okay? We're almost there. We're going to land with the birth of Christ. Which is why the study of world history is so fascinating, so cool, so important. The table had to be set for the arrival of the Messiah and the spread of the gospel. And boy, was it. And you're a beneficiary. We'll be right back. 
Why was Jesus born where he was born? Why was Jesus born when he was born? These are things that uh, most of us don't really think too much about. We just take it as is. Uh, those are the scriptures. We know generally when that happens. We've got Pontius Pilate. You have uh, Caesar Augustus. You don't really know much about him. And the Roman Empire, which was brutal and persecuted Christians, and then 300 years later embraces Christianity. That's the birth of the official Roman Catholic Church, which is why it's called the Roman Catholic Church. And so understanding uh, what the deal is with the the uh, establishment, growth, and eventual decline of the Roman Empire uh, is a big part of your story and my story if you're a Christian. And so that's why uh, I was excited to teach it this week with my U- uh, world history students at Noble U in person and online. And then I'm doing that here today. Something uh, came up with our friends down at BJU Seminary, so we needed to call an audible. I had the class right here in front of me because I taught it twice this week. So here I am going through it again with you, which I love doing because this is fascinating. So we are to the point of of Roman history that's called uh, Pax Romana, the uh, Roman peace, the peace of Rome. Flourishing, absolutely flourishing. Rome is flourishing, relative peace and uh, economic prosperity. Remember I mentioned earlier, by the end of the Roman Empire, 50,000 miles worth of roads in the Roman Empire all around the Mediterranean, which is for the most part all the known world at the time, all the way up to Great Britain, by the way. So just an amazing thing. They split that all up into provinces. Provinces are run by governors. That should ring a bell uh, for you as a Christian that understands the Gospels uh, because there was a governor, and you get people like Pontius Pilate. They're all out there, okay? So this this is... The gospel story happens in real time, in a real place, in real history. So I'm just trying to help you understand what was going on at the time. 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. That's the Pax Romana, Roman peace. That's when Jesus is born, right in the middle of that. And so Octavian, who had become the Caesar, uh, took the title Princeps, C-E-P-S, first citizen. And then they, the Senate conferred the title of Augustus on him, which is a title of divinity, which is why... Uh, you would run into some problems in Jesus's day if he's claiming he's a king. If some people are saying he says he's a, uh, he says he's God or a God mm, in the time of Caesar Augustus. No, uh, Augustus is divinity, not some carpenter, Jewish carpenter uh, born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. That that sorry, that's not cool. All right. So that's the political environment that he's in during Augustus's reign, 27 B.C. to eighty fourteen, The entire Mediterranean world enjoyed economic prosperity. Rome established a stable currency of gold and silver coins, reduced piracy, and provided for safe travel in its territory. That's important. This is even more important. Greek and later Latin became almost universal languages. All right. Now we're going to drop Jesus in. He's going to spend his 33 years. Then he's going to pass the baton to his his disciples, to the apostles, And then they're going to start writing some letters that they're going to circulate. So, class, do you remember what language most of the New Testament is written in? Right. Greek. Greek and Aramaic, but predominantly Greek. So now you have a situation in the Pax Romana and after a couple hundred years of the Roman Empire that you now have this common language. So you can write a letter like, I don't know, the book of Acts. You can write... 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. You can write the epistles. You can write Ephesians. You can write Colossians. And you write it in Greek because most people can understand Greek. Right? Perfect. What a great setup. Augustus placed ability above social class for government jobs. Ooh. We call that meritocracy, so you can blame him for that. Created a police and fire service 
for the city of Rome. Remember, this is like the turn of the, this is like the uh, first century AD, pretty impressive. And established a postal service uh, that probably didn't lose money and undertook major building programs. Okay, that's Caesar Augustus. And that's who's in charge when Jesus is born. Now watch this. I'm going to land you on Christmas. Christmas Eve service when somebody in your church most likely is going to read Luke chapter 2. Right? To provide fairer methods of taxing, because you got to see how many people are in each province, uh, Caesar Augustus ordered a what to be taken every 14 years class? That's right. A census. And one was taken near the time of Jesus' birth, which is why... Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem, which had been foretold. That was a prophecy. He'd be born in Bethlehem. So you got to get them there, though, because they're from Nazareth. So they got to get them there. The only way you're going to get them there is you got to have a census. The only reason you have a census is because of Caesar Augustus. And the only reason you have Caesar Augustus in place doing all that stuff is because of all the other 250 years of history I just explained to you. It's all setting up nicely, isn't it? Unfortunately, Augustus left no plan for choosing a successor for nearly 50 years after his death. Men who were in, the same, in some way related to Julius Caesar occupied the imperial office. Towards the end of the first century, the Roman army began to elevate its favorite generals to the office of emperor, of course, because most of the armies are made up of plebeians. Civil war often erupted as rival generals fought for the crown. Listen to this. From A.D. 235 to 285, we're getting, that's, you're getting close to the fall of Rome. From AD 235 to 285, 50 years, Rome had 26 different emperors. 25 of them died a violent death. So it gets crazy at that point. But in Jesus' birth and ministry and death and resurrection and then the spread of the gospel initially is during and just after Pax Romana. The Greek language becomes almost universal. They're building roads all over the place. Travel is relatively safe. So in the early world, if you, want to, if you want to pick a time and a place to spread the gospel, that's it. And that's why you get somebody like Pontius Pilate. So if you understand the pressure, the political environment on Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, way over here, right? The Mediterranean, Rome, Italy, way over here. Across the Mediterranean, you're heading a little bit south and really far east. And you get over to Israel, Jerusalem, Judea. And things had not been going so well. That's why when you understand, like, what, what was Barabbas? Barabbas was a terrorist because there were a lot of people that hated the Roman authority. And the further you are away from Rome, eh, the more squirrely people can afford to be. So Pontius Pilate uh, has these situations on his hands. There had been a lot of unrest. That's why Barabbas was, was arrested because he was a terrorist. And so that's the environment. And then you have Jesus of Nazareth in there and, uh, and the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, but the Pharisees mostly are like, yeah, he's causing all kinds of problems and uh, you need to crucify him. But they can't just do it. That's illegal. So that's why they appeal to Pontius Pilate. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. This guy's a big troublemaker. He claims to be God. You need to deal with this guy. And Pontius Pilate, of course, time and time again, finds no fault in him. He's like, fine, I'll have him beat the tar out of him. They flogged him. There, are you happy? Nope. Crucify him. You got to crucify this guy. You can't. We're not settling for anything less than that. And then um, they're, they're, they're talking about, uh, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take, your, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, listen, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The Pharisees understood the political environment of the day. The last thing Pontius Pilate needed was more trouble with Rome because things had not gone well. That's why somebody like Barabbas is in jail. So then eventually he's like, okay, fine. There's this, uh, you know, we have this uh, thing that we do around here and Passover and with you guys. And so we'll release one person to the people. Who is it? Jesus, the king of the Jews or Barabbas, the terrorist, the anti-Roman terrorist. Pontius Pilate is in a very tough position. He knows the guy's innocent. He doesn't have any reason to kill him. But the Pharisees are like, mm, do you want us to send an email to uh, Caesar's office? And Pontius Pilate was already in a little bit of hot water because things weren't going well in Judea. You know that if you've studied it all. And so he's like, fine. We'll release uh, Barabbas, the terrorist, and we'll crucify Jesus. And then I expect you guys will shut up and nobody's going to be calling or emailing Rome. And there you go. But all that stuff took hundreds of years. He had to go from Greece and their way of life into Rome and their way of life in order to set the table for Jesus' birth and the spread of the gospel through the Roman Empire, which takes you to Luke 2.1. And that's where this should sound familiar to you. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Because as far as anybody knew, for the most part, Rome controls all the world, all the known world. They own all of it. But we needed a census. Why, you ask? That's why we study it. And, th and it's that census that requires Joseph and Mary to get on a donkey and travel to Bethlehem. Because that was the city of David, which he was in the line of David, and that's where you have to go for the census. See it all coming together there? And then the Roman roads are being built. Pax Romana's there. Gospel. Send it out. Boom. There you go. Thank you, Lord, for your providence in world history. Pretty cool stuff. That's why I love teaching this. It's important, too. You teach world history. You teach biblical history. You teach the gospel. You teach biblical worldview. U.S. history. Civics. Christian ethics. I love it. I love it. It's important. Pray for me. Pray for my students. And thanks for your attention today. There will not be a test. This is Steve Noble on the Steve Noble Show. God willing, I'll talk to you again real soon. And like my dad always used to say, ever forward.